Good evening, welcome to episode 3 of the Goodnight Trina cast. It was a fairly chill day. Had a little bit of sleeping time and woke up with my hands numb, I think, from a long day, long day of balloons yesterday. Feels the same way did after operating a chainsaw for 12 hours. And, uh... Oh, I apologize if you if you hear some noise in the background. It's a uh, sound of a small furry creature rolling a, a ball around that distributes little uh, pieces of dog food every once in a while if it falls through the hole. Hope uh, the noise isn't too much of a distraction, but it seems to work pretty well for making uh, making dog food exciting. Well, anyways, had a day of watering the garden, picking up water from the water station, doing dishes, cleaning out the truck, vacuuming up another blanket full of feathers that chain chewed up, uh, made some smoked salmon. Anyways, a bunch of little small things that all individually don't feel like much, but all seem to add up to a day. Uh, so instead to, to, uh, instead of, uh, Rambling on too much about that, I thought we would do a little reading this evening. I picked up a book of short stories from O. Henry that happens to sit in the library here, and I've never read any of his work, but just opened it up to a random one here. And, uh, this one is called The Hand That Riles the World. It says it's from The Gentle Grafter. Many of our great men, said I, apropos of many things, have declared that they owe their brilliant success to the aid and encouragement of some brilliant woman. I know, said Jeff Peters. I've read in history and mythology about Joan of Arc and Madame Yale and Mrs. Cordell and Eve and other noted females of the past. But in my opinion, the woman of today is of little use in politics or business. What's the best in... What's she best in anyways? Men make the best cooks, milliners, nurses, housekeepers, stenographers, clerks, hairdressers, and launderers. About the only job left that a woman can beat a man in is female impersonator in vaudeville. I would have thought, said I, that occasionally, anyhow, you would have found the wit and intuition of woman valuable to you in your lines of business. Now, wouldn't you, said Jeff with an emphatic nod. Wouldn't you have imagined that? But a woman is an absolutely unreliable partner in any straight swindle. She's liable to turn honest on you when you are depending on her most. I tried him once. Bill Humble, an old friend of mine in the territories, conceived the illusion that he wanted to be appointed United States Marshal. And that time, me and Andy were doing a square, legitimate business of selling walking canes. If you unscrewed the head of one of the canes and turned it up to your mouth, half a pint of good rye whiskey would go trickling down your throat to reward you for your act of intelligence. The deputies was annoying me and Andy some, and when Bill spoke to me about his officious aspirations, I saw how the appointments as marshal might help along the firm of Peters and Tucker. Jeff, Bill says to me, you are a man of learning and education, besides having knowledge and information concerning not only rudiments and facts, but and attainments. 
I do, says I, and I have never regretted it. I am not one, says I, who would cheapen education by making it free. Tell me, says I, which is the most valuable to mankind, literature or horse racing? Why, or playing the... P I mean, of course, the, the poets and the great writers have got the call, of course, says Bill. Exactly, says I. Then why do the masterminds of finance, philanthropy, says I, charge us two dollars to get into a racetrack and let us into a library for free? Is that distilling into the masses, says I, a correct estimate of the relative value of the two means of self-culture and disorder? You are arguing outside of my faculties of sense and rhetoric, says Bill. What I wanted you to do is go to Washington and dig out this appointment for me. I have no ideas of cultivation and intrigue. I'm a plain citizen and I need the job. I've killed seven men, says Bill. Got nine children. I've been a good Republican ever since the first of May. I can't read nor write and I see no reason why I ain't eligible for office and I think your partner, Mr. Tucker, goes on Bill, is also a man of sufficient ingratiation and connected system of mental delinquency to assist you in securing the appointment. I will give you the preliminary, says Bill, thousand dollars for drinks, bribes, and car fare in Washington. If you land the job, I will pay you a thousand dollars more, cash down, and guarantee you impunity in bootleg and whiskey for twelve months. Are you patriotic to the West enough to help me put this thing through the whitewashed wigwam of the great father of the most eastern flag station of the Pennsylvania Railroad? Says Bill. Well, I talked to Andy about it, and uh, he liked the idea immense. Andy was a man of an involved nature. He was never content to plod along, as was I, selling to the peasantry like some little tool, like a combination stake beater, shoehorn, Marcel waver, monkey wrench, nail file, potato masher, and molten parvo tuning fork. Andy had the artistic temper, which is not to be judged as a preacher's or moral man's by purely commercial deflections. So we accepted Bill's offer and strikes out for Washington. Says I to Andy, when we got located at a hotel on South Dakota Avenue, GSSW. Now, Andy, for the first time in our lives, we got to do a real dishonest act. Lobbying is something we've never been used to, but we've got to scandalize ourselves for Bill Humble's sake. In a straight and legitimate business, says I, we could afford to introduce a little foul play and chicanery, but in a disorderly and heinous piece of malpractice like this, it... Seems to me the straightforward and above-board ways is the best. I propose, says I, that we hand over $500 of this money to the chairman of the National Campaign Committee, get a receipt, lay the receipt on the president's desk, and tell him about Bill. The president is a man who would appreciate a candidate who went about getting office that way instead of pulling wires. Andy agreed with me, but after we talked up the scheme over the hotel clerk, we gave that plan up. He told us there was only one way to get an appointment in Washington, and that was through a lady lobbyist. He gave us the address of one he recommended, uh, Mrs. Avery, who said he was high up and sociable in diplomatic rings and circles. Next morning, 10 o'clock, me and Andy called at her hotel and were shown up into her reception room. This Mrs. Avery was a solace and a balm to the eyesight. 
She had hair the color of the back of a 20-gallon gold certificate, blue eyes, and a system of beauty that would make the girl on a cover of July magazine look like a cook on a monogonahela coal barge. She had on a low-necked dress covered with silver spangles and diamond rings and ear bobs. Her arms was bare, and she was using a desk telephone with one hand, drinking tea with the other. Well, boys, she says after a bit, what is it? I, I told her in as few words as possible what we wanted for Bill and the price we could pay. Those western appointments, says she, are easy. Let me see now, says she. Who could pull that through for us? No, no, no use fooling with the territorial delegates, I guess, says she. That Senator Sniper would be about the man. He's from somewheres in the West. Let's see how he... Let's see how he stands on my private menu card. She takes some papers out of a pigeonhole with the letter S over it. Yes, says she. He's marked with a star. That means ready to serve. Now, let's see. Age 55, married twice, Presbyterian, likes blondes, Tolstoy, poker, stewed terrapin, sentimental at third bottle of wine. Yes, she goes on. I am sure I can have your friend, Mr. Bummer, appointed to minister to Brazil. Humble, says I, Mr. Humble. And United States Marshal was the birth. Oh, oh yes, says Miss Avery. I have so many deals of this sort, I sometimes get them confused. Give me all the memoranda you have of the case, Mr. Peters, and come back in four days. I think it can be arranged by then. So me and Andy goes back to our hotel and waits. Andy walks up and down and chews the left end of his mustache. Woman of high intellect and perfect beauty is the rare thing, Jeff, says he. As rare, says I, as an omelet made from the eggs of the fabulous bird known of the epidermis, says I. A woman like that, says Andy, ought to lead a man to the highest positions of opulence and fame. I misdoubt, says I, if any woman ever helped a man to secure a job any more than to have his meals ready and promptly spread a report than the other candidate's wife had once been a shoplifter. There are no more adapted for business and politics, says I, than Algernon Charles Swineburne is to be the floor manager at one of Chuck Connor's annual balls. I know, says I to Andy, that sometimes a woman seems to step out into the house of mine light as the charge d'affaires of her man's political job, but how does it come out? Say they have a neat little berth somewhere on a foreign console of record to Afghanistan, or lock keeper on the Delaware, or the in the Raritan Canal. One day this man finds out his wife putting on her overshoes and three months supply of bird seed into the canary's cage. Sioux Falls, he asks with a kind of hopeful look in his eye. No, Arthur, says she. Washington, we're wasted here, says she. You ought to be a toady extraordinary to the court of St. Bridget or head porter to the island of Puerto Rico. I'm about to see it. <laughs> this is the narrator speaking. We just had to take a brief pause for a... For a a brief dog play session to reassure them that a loud, scary thing that fell over was not actually that scary. And uh, refill the little rolly food distributing ball. 
Um, we're going to continue with O. Henry's The Hand That Riles the World. Then this lady, I says to Andy, moves against the authorities in Washington with her baggage and munitions consisting of five dozen indiscriminating letters written by her, written to her by a member of the cabinet when she was 15, a letter of introduction from King Leopold to the Smithsonian Institution in a pink silk costume with canary-colored spats. Well, and then what, I goes. She has the letters printed in the evening papers that match her costume, and she lectures at an informal tea given in the palm room of the B&O Depot and then calls on the president, the ninth assistant secretary of commerce and labor, the first aide-de-camp of the blue room in an unidentified colored manner, waiting there to grasp her by the hands and feet. They carry her out to the SWB Street and leave her on a cellar door. That ends it. The next time we hear of her, she's writing postal cards to the Chinese minister and asking him to get Arthur a job in the tea store. Then, says Andy, you don't think Miss Avery will land the marshal ship for Bill? I do not, says I. I do not wish to be a septic, but I doubt if she can do as well as you could have done, as you and me could have done. I don't agree with you, says Andy. I'll bet you she does. I'm proud of having the higher opinion of the talents and the powers of negotiation of ladies. We was back at Miss Avery's hotel at the time she appointed. She was looking pretty and fine enough, and as far as that went, to make any man let her name every officer in the country. But I hadn't much faith in looks, so I was certainly surprised when she pulls out a document with the great seal of the United States on it, and it was William Henry Humble in fine big black hand on the back. You might have had it the next day, boy, said Miss Avery. I hadn't the slightest trouble in getting it, says she. I just asked for it, that's all. Now, I'd like to talk to you for a while, she goes on, but I'm awfully busy, and I know you'll excuse me. Got an ambassadorship, two consulates, and a dozen other minor applications to look after. Can hardly find time to sleep. You'll have to give my compliments to Mr. Humble when you get home, of course. Well, I handed her the $500, which she pitched into her desk drawer without counting. I put Bill's appointment in my pocket, and me and Andy made our adieus. We started back for the territory the same day. We wired Bill. Job landed, get tall glasses ready, and we felt pretty good. Andy joshed me all the way about how little I knew about women. All right, says I. I admit that she surprised me, but it's the first time I ever knew one of them to manipulate a piece of business on time without getting it bungled up in some way, says I. Down about the edge of Arkansas, I got out Bill's appointment and looked it over, and then I handed it to Andy to read. Andy read it, but didn't add any remarks to my silence. The paper was for Bill, all right, and a genuine document, but it had appointed him postmaster of Dade City, Florida. Me and Andy got off the train to Little Rock and sent Bill's appointment to him by mail. Then we struck northeast towards Lake Superior. I never saw Bill Humble after that. That was the end of a uh, recording of O. Henry's The Hand That Riles the World. Hope to uh, find other short stories to share with you. Perhaps a more carefully curated selection in the future. 
I hope you've enjoyed the sound effects in the back of, as I mentioned, a rather noisy uh, plastic dog food distributing toy that is fairly noisy on this wooden floor, but uh, it's um, receiving a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, I think we're going to go take a little stroll down to the gravel pit and turn in for the night after that. Hope you're doing real well. Everything in the in the news tells me that uh, fires are pretty busy down there. Hope that's uh, hope you're finding a way to keep yourself occupied and that things are going well and getting to hang out with cool people. We'll see you soon.